Here's another fantastic podcast from the Dan and Jono Show, Mondays, 6 till 7pm on Joy 94.9. Hey, this is Dee Mason from the Dan and Jono Show. This is a teeny tiny special edition podcast, which includes the full interview with producer Sue Maslin. Sue and I sat down actually face to face on the 6th of July in 2020, not knowing that Victoria was about to head back into lockdown for six weeks. The interview was intended to be a relatively short piece about the importance of failure on the road to success, just for inclusion in the Dean Jono show. Little did I know that Sue Maslin, with all her successful film credits, had so much to say on the issue of failure. She was very generous with her time and we felt like it absolutely deserved its own podcast. Before I introduce her, let's hear a little about her career. Sue Maslin is one of Australia's most successful screen producers with a track record of producing award-winning feature and documentary films. Her most recent is the smash hit The Dressmaker, one of Australia's all-time highest grossing films. Other features include Road to Nil, Japanese Story and Irresistible. She's won a great many awards for her films and for her leadership, but notably last year Sue was appointed as an officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished services to the Australian film industry as a producer. Her latest documentary is The Show Must Go On, which premiered on ABC TV late last year, and you can still see it on iView. So get on that. Uh, Okay, well, here we go. Sue Maslin, thanks for joining us on D and Jono. Great to be here, dear. I actually have to thank you on a couple of levels. One is that, well, you're helping me out by coming along and talking about failure, but also you tangentially are the reason that I know John O'Hara. Oh, really? Can Do you tell. Well, you introduced me in a kind of a way in that I went to your, what's the documentary? The Show Must Go On. And you had an event, I think it was a launch perhaps, or a, some event at Art Centre Melbourne. And I was, I went there alone and I was sat next to a charming bald man called John O'Hara and we hit it off immediately. We were kind of naughtily um, passing notes to each other while you were presenting your piece. Oh, fantastic. That's good to hear. Sue, do you see yourself as a successful producer? Yes, I do. But actually, I love the idea and the opportunity to talk about failure because it is absolutely impossible to have success without failure. That's a definite statement. Mm. People, have, people have alluded to the fact that you need a smattering of failure to, to, to unearth your success. But you are saying that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. And when people actually, most people have, do not have a clue what a producer does. But when people ask me, well, you know, what is it? What is it that you do? I actually say I'm in the risk management business because that's all I do is I'm balancing risk and uh, success and failure, risk, trying to enhance creative risk taking, but reduce the financial and the legal uh, risk taking. And of course, you have uh, success and failure the minute you get into a very risky business. Would you say that every film project can expect to experience some failure in its process? Of course. In fact, I've never worked on a film, The Dressmaker included, which would have to be the most successful film to date, without having had that film rejected many times over. Right. Uh, it's just part of the job description. So do you see the rejection of a script or the rejection of a pitch as a failure? It's uh, their failures along the way to success, yeah. I mean, I've been accused uh, most notably by my partner of having a kind of a Pollyanna syndrome because I actually find it very difficult to ever properly take on the notion of failure as a kind of a a dead end, a closed door. Mm -hmm. I always see it as a, a path that cannot be followed in a particular direction. So you just go around the roadblock, you find another path. 
and that that's my philosophy and um yeah i have my own way really of defining what success is what do you chalk up as your most significant success you know, in this business and in show business generally, people think success is the kind of the, the glamour, the red carpet, the awards, the um, you know the big opening weekend, um, which you've had plenty are, of. Yeah, they're they're all indicators, but they're actually not the things that you carry in your heart and soul with you when you think of yourself in terms of success, or myself in terms of success. For me, actually. One of the biggest successes was the very first film that I was ever involved in, a film called Thanks Girls and Goodbye, which was a very small documentary about the women who were involved in the land army, you know, the women who did food production and kept the farms going and kept the food on our tables during the Second World War. Now, the reason that that film gave me the first glimpse of real success was because it as a film, changed lives. It mattered. It made a difference um, and it impacted. And that film still, I mean, you look, we released that film in 1987 and, in fact, as recently as only two or three weeks ago, I was asked to include, you know, the film in a permanent exhibition at the old Treasury building mm. on um, women in war. Now, that's what success is if it aligns with why it is that you're doing what you're doing. And it, you know, it speaks to the question, well, why be a filmmaker? Why mm. be a producer? And for me, it's very simple. I, um, in my work, and whether it's through storytelling or it's through the experiences that sit around storytelling, it's just about the desire to empower others and make a difference about ideas that matter. And if you can do that, then that's success in my view. Empowering others and giving women who didn't have a voice a voice is great and I can see how you would find that success making. It's not putting food on the table long term though, is it? So that leads to the second definition of success. <laughs> okay. And I see success is having a sustainable creative life. Mm -hmm. Just continuing to find enough ways to make income and revenue and enough ways to continue doing what you do creatively. How important is reputation in the industry in terms of success and failure? Reputation is pretty much everything because you're only as good as your last project often. Mm. We have very, very short memories in this business and people do look to the external factors very quickly. How much did you earn at the box office? How well did the film rate? How many eyeballs did you get? They're the kind of short-term quick uh, way of people getting a handle on what success might look like. But actually, uh, in any storytelling, it's the long tail, it's the long term um, mm -hmm. that actually really counts. So looking through your CV, as I have done, um, I would chalk your greatest success up in terms of those external factors that people look at to the dressmaker. Yes. So tell us a bit about um, how successful that was in the way that other people view success in film. Well, the, the dressmaker surprised everybody and even ourselves, Jocelyn and myself, uh, that it went way beyond even what we imagined. And when I say that, it, uh, as a film, it generated more than $20 million at the box office, making it the 12th highest grossing Australian film of all time. But we have to put this in the context of it being a film that I was told very squarely at the outset there was no audience no commercial audience for this film. 
Why? Because it was a film that was very much targeted towards a female audience. Mm. And that was not regarded as um, commercial, which is the reason it get, got knocked back. I'm speaking with Sue Maslin, producer of many films, including The Dressmaker. And we're talking about the issue of success v failure. And Sue Maslin's asserted to me that you cannot have a successful film without experiencing some failure. In fact, you can't succeed without having mm-hmm. failed. I ran into you the other day and I said to you, off the top of my head, just off the cuff, I said, Sue Maslin, successful producer, have you ever suffered a um, professional failure? And you laughed like an hyena at me. <laughs> You said, I could talk all day about the failures in this business. And uh, you brought up The Road to Nil, which is a great story. Indeed. But I also mentioned to you, um, I take sort of perverse delight in collecting the reject letters. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I would say, you know, on a film like uh, Road to Nil or even Japanese Story and certainly The Dressmaker, those files would probably have to be about a half an inch thick usually. You you just get used to... um, to letters of rejection. And knowing you as I do, they would be physical copies of the letters, not digital versions. Yeah, Yeah. kind of a bit (laughs) analogue. Which is good because (laughs) it means that you will, once you get the big glorious office Mm. in town, I'm sure you can um, literally wallpaper. Could you wallpaper your wall of your office with them? quite Quite possibly. They all sit in a, uh, a lock-up down in Flemington because they okay. <laughs> have mugs boxes. But just getting well, back that, to road... Well, that lock-up is now in lockdown if it's in Flemington. That's true, the yeah. lock-up and lockdown. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, look, I actually think one of the, the greatest um, gifts was failing very early in my career. And uh, this was with Road to Nil in the time when we had completed a film against all odds, a low-budget first feature film. And like so many uh, people, when you finish that film and you're ready to kind of go out into the world and you just want to get that film into cinemas, we couldn't get a single cinema that would take uh, any note of it. We were with a terrific distributor, um, Ronan Films, who had actually at that point not only done a lot of documentaries, but they'd also done Strictly Ballroom and Shine. So they'd had a lot of success, but they could not get a damn cinema (laughs) to screen our little film about four bowling ladies that flips upside down on the road to nil. It's a comedy of errors as everybody in the country town tries to get involved in sorting out the accident, but they all get it ass up. But you were also ahead of your time in terms of jumping onto the bowling thing because that came later. It did, Cracker Jack. That's right. We paved the way for Cracker Jack. (laughs) And also the sort of the groundswell of interest in bowling that followed that. Carry on. So what happened was that the reason we couldn't get a single cinema to take us is that the film actually had its premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival. And Melbourne Film Festival is not meant to actually do uh, reviews of films that screen at the festival. The journalists can review the festival and speak about them, but they're not meant to do film reviews. But one did, and they panned the film. They really didn't like it at all. And, of course, critics tend to follow other critics, and all of a sudden we were kind of on the nose. The film was on the nose. And... So the day that the distributor was about to ring me and say, Sue, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to go straight to video. Uh, We can't get it into a cinema. VHS. That's what it was (laughs) in those days. (laughs) And But he had a call from Village Cinemas and said, look, mate, look, as a favour, we'll give you a couple of country cinemas. Mm. Um, You know, Bendigo, Ballarat, Warrnambool, just, you know, a handful. I think there were seven. And we thought great we've got seven country cinemas 
We can't rely on the critics. We can't rely on anybody else. We are going to have to do this campaign ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I learnt the hard way about how hard it is to get your film out there to the public. But we went for broke and we set up, you know, Australia's first major premiere in a country town in Bendigo. And we um, filled that cinema and, in fact, in country towns, people loved Road to Nil. We got the actors up there. All of it, We got the um, 60, not 60 Minutes, the Sunday program, Channel 9, um, 7.30 report. All of a sudden, then the papers got onto it. All of a sudden, Nil, <laughs> and mm. in fact, Pyramid Hill, where we filmed, was the place to be for that right. premiere. And that little film that started on seven cinemas, of course, filled those cinemas. People loved the movie. And when the city cinemas saw, oh, my God, what's going on here? People are flocking to see this movie. It jumped to 21 screens and we stayed in cinemas for Mm. nine months with that little film. It was the little film that could. But we, we did Everything we, you know, shamelessly, like we dressed up in drag as bowling ladies and yeah. went to the AFI awards to get photo opportunities to get the publicity out. We did trivia nights, we did Q and A's everywhere. We got on the road and twelve months we worked that film, and it was the best, best training I've ever had. And it's exactly what we did on the dressmaker as well. So, in terms of failure, in that, the lesson of failure, there mm. was that the failure that was handed to you was the failure to get it into cinemas, and then at that point somebody has to intervene, intervene to save that failure. So you need to have somebody, your Pollyanna. Mm who goes, we can make something out of this, we can polish this dirt. Give you an opportunity and then you create. You create where that opportunity can go. So the failure uh, and what I learnt from it is don't rely entirely on what other people think of your work. In fact, you know, from that point, they often say, if you're going to believe the great reviews, you have to believe the crap mm. reviews. So it's better just to ignore the whole lot. Yep. Um, and don't rely on third parties to give you the endorsement or acknowledgement um, to satisfy your own internal sense of what success or failure is. Mm. It has to be from within yourself. It has to just align with why it is that you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And if if it aligns and it's um, you know it gives you pleasure and joy and excitement and hopefully you know some income. <laughs> Mm. Then, then that's what you listen to. I just want to talk about mentorship for a moment because I know that you're a believer in the phenomenon. And I'm sure that you mentor many filmmakers and other people in the industry. Did you have a mentor? And as a, a, a senior professional in your field, do you still rely on mentors? Yes, um, I did. In fact, the very, very first film, Thanks Girls and Goodbye, I knew nothing. I was a country girl. I went to uni to study science. I didn't know anything about filmmaking. and But I was interested to know who are all these women that you know were on the land. Um, I hadn't heard about them. Why hadn't I heard about them? But um, I did do a one-year media course, clearly not enough in Canberra to launch a film career. <laughs> So I needed to reach out to experienced filmmakers, and which I did, feminist filmmakers like Sarah Gibson and Jenny Thornley. And, um, and I learned pretty quickly that if you were focused in what you were asking a mentor for, so with Jenny it was really about script you know, um, direction and with Sarah it was about tell me about producing. I did the work but I was very targeted with the, 
the, the kind of help I was looking for. And that's the advice I give uh, young people or emerging people now. Don't, you know, approach a mentor and say, tell me how to make a film or tell me, mm. you know, uh, uh, how to get into the industry. Come in with your own, you know, direct need and with very clear focus of the help you need and then you will not get turned back, turned down. I've never been turned down asking for help from mentors and I don't turn people down if they come to me with very kind of focus-specific um, requests. But yes, in terms of do I still look to mentors? Um, absolutely. And I have mentors now uh, who, you know, are friends and colleagues who I can pick up the phone and talk to and get advice. I don't have a formal mentor arrangement as in some professions that um, will organise you know, a much more formalised um, relationship. But I do amongst um, my colleagues and men as well, men and women mentors mm-hmm. uh, that uh, are very important. Uh, Does a mentor have to be m- not necessarily older but more senior than you? They don't, I think they do need to be more senior than you or certainly have more experience than you, but they don't necessarily need to be from your um, your professional uh, sector. No, exactly. Well, yeah. if you wanted mentoring mm. in TikTok, for example, you're not going to go to somebody presumably older than yourself. True, yes. true. It's about experience. That's right. So do you, do you think, do, have you found in your career at all that you, the fear of failure has held you back? No. In fact, it doesn't even really register. The more difficult something is or the greater the challenge, uh, the more it's like a red rag to a bull to me. Mm-hmm. So when you'd, I be get, a, you'd be a nightmare to live with. I am a bit. In fact, that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that was where I was really going to talk about failure because in a professional sense, I will take anything on. If somebody says this cannot be done, that's enough to, to, um, to get me going really. But where the real failure can... Uh, kick in heavily is on a personal level because it because it does come at a cost. So the dressmaker, which my partner and I took to calling the stress maker, <laughs> for very obvious reasons, because yeah. it was seven years of unrelenting stress. Um, it did come at a a very high cost, and at the end of that, I was given a really massive wake up call when my partner said to me one day. I'm really sick of being in this relationship on my own. And it was like, whoa, um, I have to really think about this because giving yourself over 100% to a project uh, does mean that, yes, you might succeed in in that film, Mm. but if if it's leading to a a failure in what actually matters way, way more, which is your relationships, Mm. then it's not worth it. It really is not worth it. So I have since then, you know, been lo- working in quite a different way. Oh, can you explain to mm. us how you've modified your work work behaviours mm. to helping that personal? Well, I have fit? to say, COVID's helped a bit. Right, <laughs> <laughs> working at home, yeah, and not being so absent, and um, thinking so much more about. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the work-life balance. It's impossible in this business. Mm. You, it, it, the, the balance is over the long term because it really is a roller coaster ride. Um, so you cannot just have a balanced day in this business, I believe. But over time, it is absolutely about carving out. No one will give you permission to take time off. Um, 
you have to carve that out and value that and uh, set limits on it so people respect it around mm. you. We become our own worst enemies otherwise mm. and never we're just always carrying the anxiety or the pressure or whatever it is that we're working on. So one of the ways that um, I've been looking at, at, at doing it is just valuing that, that time and carving out the time. It's interesting because I think actors, mm. um, film actors, do it in a way that they say, okay, I'm going to go and be on set for these eight weeks and I'm going to be just be living and working mm. on set, do it, and then mm. I will go on holiday for three months with my partner in the Caribbean or whatever. But I guess a producer is pushing shit uphill for the six months up to that point and then they're in post. So well, it's, it's a long game for you guys. Yeah, it's about seven years per film. On average. And then that doesn't balance against three yeah. weeks in the Caribbean, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if you don't get it. So no amount of... It's but a good I point. do do the equivalent of the three weeks in the Carib- Caribbean now. So at the end of the, the Dressmaker, I did take off, you know, January, February after the film came out um, in the preceding October and just went AWOL, actually, mm-hmm. um, which I hadn't done for seven years before that, really. So did Charlotte work on the your partner work on the project as well? Yes, yes, she did. She did all of the uh, extras casting. Right, and okay. that actually we thought oh look that it might be good because we could spend more time but actually everyone's so frantically busy. I think I saw less of her right. as a result of that. But the you know the biggest challenge was at the end of the day after I'd you know spent probably you know a 12 hour day on set and then another couple of hours dealing with financiers in the UK or in the US uh, I was speechless the last thing I could do was talk about yeah. what had happened that day darling mm, forget yeah. it so um you actually end up becoming autistic right. now over time if you're not aware of that and the damage it can be doing, then I see that as failure. And I was unaware of that. You know, when I was in the zone, I was just so focused on getting that film made. Yeah. Uh, so t- that, to me, was a failure um, and one that I really needed to address. Um, and so going forward, we are looking at how, you know, during a film production, we'll work differently and mm. live differently and actually stay you know, together um, yeah. during that time and not be sort of divorced by the production. It's a really good point you make that if if people have got empirical ways of evaluating success over failure, it doesn't matter if you tick all those boxes if you if you not if you are failing in your private life. So you need to have a balance of those two things. Like to be a true success, mm. you can't be failing in one aspect. Yes, yeah, the the cost is too high and I think you know people are kidding themselves if they think that it's enough to have um, a successful professional life. It's funny, you know, um, I, you know, and I have been fortunate. I've had some very successful films and I've had some amazing red carpet moments from Cannes to Toronto to, you know, having Liam Hemsworth and Chris, his brother, mm. on you know, the red carpet here in Melbourne. But you don't actually, when you're in the middle of all of that, y- 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 there's... It's fun, but it's it doesn't sustain. Like mm. it's it's fleeting. It's um it, it doesn't sort of sit with you. It's um it's like the kind of popcorn equivalent of right. what success is. Mm, high it, sugar and fat. Uh, yeah, it's not the porridge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're striving for porridge. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of having the porridge to keep you going. <laughs> Sue Maslin, do you what have you got in the pipeline now? 
Well, look, right at the moment, I've um, been immersed in the show Must Go On, which is all about mental well-being in the arts and entertainment industry. And again, trying to make this crazy business just a little bit better for those of us who find ourselves working in it. And it's really tough at the moment with with COVID, the challenges on our uh, mental well-being. Uh, quite apart from the financial challenges, the isolation, the anxiety about will we ever be able to get back into live performance or cinemas and so on in a meaningful way again. So that that um, has been very, very evo- involving. Um, and I'm running that at the same time as the next project, which, and here comes Pollyanna, yeah. <laughs> I'm distributing for a national release in October of this year and this is a film called Brazen Hussies which is all about the second wave feminist movement in Australia and it's a wonderful documentary that looks at the women who ignited that movement Mm. and it's so inspiring because it can show that you know small groups grassroots group grassroots groups can make profound change so I'm in the process of putting together a campaign you know a national campaign for that film, knowing full well at the moment we can't get more than um, 50 people in into cinemas. Yes, but it, um, uh, just to illustrate the point that Sue was making before about the long road of a film, I think I interviewed you about Brazen Hussies three years ago. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right? It's been a four-year... That year was the first time we met on radio. That's right, yes. Indeed. It's been a four-year project um, driven by the wonderful writer-director uh, Catherine Dwyer who is somebody I've been mentoring over that time. And it's, um, it, uh, yeah, is is a film that is very much a one for our times. It's going to be controversial. But is documentary, no, or is it a feature film? Documentary. Yeah, because you've got that beautiful Mm. um, footage of the, Mm. I mean, just uh, in my mind, I can see the sort of riot image from the the still that I've got in my mind from it. Well, it's... You know, it's a crazy time, you know, to be looking really in the light of uh, Me Too, intersectional politics, um, transgender politics, to be looking at, I suppose, slightly anarchic idea or archaic idea of grassroots feminism. But it's such a profoundly important conversation we need to have Mm. um, because it strikes at the heart of how do you make change? You know, there's radical strategies and there's reformist strategies Mm -hmm. and we all have a lot of fear and loathing around camps and tribes within those two strategies but actually they're all valued they're all valuable they're all um, relevant and they need to work together in looking at what the real reasons for oppression are because they're shared they're shared and uh, that's what this film is about brazen brazen hussies in cinemas in cinemas on the 22nd of October. Oh, it's really happening. It's really happening. <laughs> because so that means it's uh, in the can, it's done. It, yeah, well, it's very close to being finished wow. right now. Um, but, you know, COVID. That's lightning, lightning speed, four years. Yes, well, you know, hell or high water. Uh, we want everyone to be able to see this film. Brazen Hussies is in the can, about to be released this October. How will you know when it's a success or when it's failed? I would think... We will know when, if the film is actually able to screen for a start. Yep. Um, and it will be actually on television on International Women's Day. So if all 
March 8th. March 8th of next year. But to me, the real success will be if people really start to engage with the ideas and the um, the debates that sit around uh, feminism, and we get over some of the kind of grandstanding and the ice, you know, the the positions that are isolating women mm. and um, non-binary, and you know, anybody who wants to be involved in this discussion mm. of what do we do about this pervasive patriarchy that um, continues to separate us. Mm. If we get that conversation going, it will be, have been a success. It is interesting the way that the silos of gender and sexuality and um, non-binary, mm. binary that that really is detracting from the feminist message, isn't it? It just oh. seems to me that it does seem to be splitting the female voice. It, it's splitting it and it's damaging. And I'm really, you know, disappointed that now, you know, th- that we've got acronyms like TERF, you know, oh, and yeah. trans-exclusionary radical feminists now gaining currency because actually we're all fighting for the same thing. So mm. let's not, you know, fight each other over this. Yeah. Does seem extraordinary. I have one final question for you on the issue of documentary filmmaking, which I think is um, very valuable and I think increasingly valuable. Do you think that that there's going to be a pre and post COVID lens? Like I know that we're in the middle of it now, but do you feel that that's going to change the way we tell stories, or or is it? I don't know. How do you feel that COVID is going to impact that industry? I think uh, COVID will impact uh, in a lot of very pragmatic, practical ways. It clearly has. But in terms of ideas and themes, we've just been reminded in a pretty seriously way, big way, um, the fundamental nature of life. And that is we never, ever know what's coming around the next corner, mm. ever. So we've just had the rug pulled out from underneath our feet. Uh, we will, you know, We've had this relative period of stability over the last number of decades and we're back to being reminded about the human condition. Um, We do live in a world of uncertainty and that will absolutely shape the kind of work that gets made going forward. Absolutely. Sue Maslin, thanks so much for dropping by. Dee and Jono to have a chat with us today. Thanks, Dee. It's been um, fun. I'll put this entire conversation up on our podcast, uh, joy.org.au forward slash Dee and Jono, and um, we look forward to hearing about your next project soon. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. The Dee and Jono Show, Mondays 6 till 7 p.m. on Joy 94.9.